0: Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app available at your app store. We hope you're moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Hey church, we trust and hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, This morning we are in week three, the finale of our Passing the Gravy sermon series. And next week we begin a brand new sermon series called Once Upon a Christmas and If you haven't been around Prodigal Church during the Christmas season, we do Christmas big. We love it, and so we can't wait to sing together some Christmas songs and dive into the story of Christmas together, and we're just gonna have an absolute blast. So don't miss any of our Christmas series starting next week. Uh, In the 1960s, there was an international conference on comparative religions, and experts from around the world debated on what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith and they debated and they couldn't come to a conclusion at all. And then C.S. Lewis uh, walks into the room late and he says, what's all the ruckus about? And they said, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world's religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. Grace. And after some discussion, everyone agreed. The notion of God's love coming free of charge, no strings attached on the house seems to go against every instinct that we have as humans. Grace really is amazing. I heard a pastor not long ago define grace this way. He said, picture yourself that you're in a boat and there's a current and the current is sending you straight to hell. Then God provides you oars in your boat That's grace. Oars for you to row. So as long as you receive those oars, as long as you receive that grace, you keep rowing, you're gonna make it to the eternal kingdom. He said that grace is the divine enablement to keep on rowing. And a lot of Christians just nodded in acknowledgement that that's true. But that's not amazing grace. That's amazing you, right? This is me giving. This is me serving. This is me resisting sin. This would be amazing me, amazing you, and you're not that amazing, and neither am I. Uh, there's lots of times in my life where I would say, yes, amen, it, it, that is grace. Grace is the divine enablement to keep rowing. But I don't think that's grace. Something didn't feel right about this pastor's message. So I've I just got to... I just got to keep rowing like, like my whole life. Now the pastor wasn't all wrong. I just think he mistook for what grace is for what grace does. Grace does empower you to keep rowing. Grace does empower you to make better choices and to resist temptation, but that's what grace does. That's not what grace is. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. In Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, says this in the Amplified version. For it is by free grace, God's unmerited favor, that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation through your faith. So there is a current, but the current isn't moving you towards hell, it's moving you towards grace. God's not holding you hostage for what you did it back in college. You're holding yourself hostage. God's like, can't we move on past that? I, I've already paid for that. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has arrived. Philip Yancey calls grace the last best word. See, all other words have really been tainted in one way or another, but every English usage of the word grace retains some glory of the original. Take, for example, these phrases. Many people will say grace before a meal, or we're grateful for kindness. We're gracious in hospitality. If we're in good standing, then we are in their good grace. We are congratulated by others. When we like the service at a restaurant, we leave Gratuity, when we are given an extension on an assignment, that's called a grace period. Grace is a lot like romantic love. Like if you wanted to find a definition of romantic love, you could probably go to a dictionary and find something that describes it. But if you really wanted to understand romantic love, you fall in love. And you don't understand it until you experience it. And if you look through the gospels and if you look at the words of Jesus, there is one word that you will not find in any of his sermons, any of his teachings, any of his parables, the word grace. You won't find that word one time in the gospels. Yet the one person who teaches us the most about grace is Jesus. He may not have used the word grace, but he embodied grace. He may not have defined grace, but he exemplified grace. Even in how he selected his disciples, he showed grace, right? In the time of Jesus, it was common for rabbis to only select the brightest and smartest to be their disciples. There would be this application process um, to ensure that they only get the best disciples. And so if this rabbi is going to teach him, if he's going to share Everything he knows with another person. Well, they better be good students. No C students, okay? Straight A's only. I don't have time for average. This is how you would apply to become a disciple of a rabbi. Only those at the top. But here's what's interesting about Jesus. He doesn't accept applications. He offers invitations. That's our Jesus. That's our God. He doesn't accept applications. He offers invitations. He invites people who would have never made the cut had they been applying. So he invites a few stinky fishermen. Then he goes to a tax collector's booth and he says, Matthew, be my disciple. And the people around would have thought Jesus was making a joke, that Jesus was, he was being funny. He wasn't. It was an invitation. Jesus invites us no matter what you have done. And it is in that encounter where we encounter grace. He doesn't receive applications. He offers invitations. Grace hasn't given up on us. Our stories aren't finished. He offers an invitation for me and for you today and every day. There's this amazing parable. That Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20. And it reveals grace. The word grace may not be found in the story, but it embodies grace. It's in every line of the story. Matthew chapter 20, we'll start at verse 1. It says this For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, In ancient farming communities and even now, day laborers will stand on corners, early morning hours, waiting for someone to hire them. And those who didn't get hired by the local landowners will probably have nothing to eat in the night in first century Palestine. And often the people who are hired first are those who are strong, young, people who are healthy and in the prime of their lives. And the landowner goes out at 6 a.m. to contract his workers. And a number of commentators think this is very odd because uh, no, one would, no one of elite status, no landowner would go out to the marketplace to hire laborers. He would have people do that for him. So in this parable, the laborers agree to a denarius for their day's work. This was the typical day's wage for a Roman soldier. And the landowner and the workers agreed upon uh the wage uh, now the the agreement is precisely that uh, the greek word is symphonio it's where we get the word symphony there in this agreement will be important in the parable particularly at the very end so our presumption here is that as it was with the first hired that the householder has employed all he found the parable gives no indication that any workers were left out then after this familiar opening scene the parable becomes increasingly more strange. Verse three, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. See, the owner goes back to the marketplace later in the morning and then the mid-afternoon and searches out for more unemployed workers and he promises to pay them whatever is right. Notice he doesn't say, I promise to pay you whatever is fair. No, he says, I promise to pay you whatever is right. And this is an important distinction as we shall see later on in this parable. It's a strange scene. It's very unusual because normally a landowner would hire all the laborers he needed in the morning, first thing in the morning, but he keeps going back looking for more. Why? And as we read the parable, we start to get a sense that the landowner hires them not because he needs them, but because they're there. Our landowner returns to the market over and over again, suggests one of three things. Either that one, he's clueless about the number of workers he needs. Two, he has insufficient number of workers, although he has hired everyone available. Or three, he has another agenda. And I contend that it is the latter not the former. He's got another agenda. What that agenda is remains to be seen, but let's continue reading. Verse six, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. With each moment, the parable starts feeling less and less like a story about farming and the characters seem less and less real. Uh, It's not about a real vineyard or a real farmer. The owner goes back to the marketplace later in the morning, then in the afternoon, and then even at 5 p.m. and he searches out for more unemployed workers. And it says that we are told that, that they're standing around doing nothing. And these last group of laborers would have been the laborers that nobody wanted. They would be the real outcasts. They would be the paralytics, the blind, the ones missing limbs, the old, the lepers, the widows, the very young. They'll wait all day long to be hired. They wait, they hope, they pray that someone will show up needing them, wanting them with grace and mercy. Oftentimes they go home empty-handed. Or if they are hired toward the middle or the end of the day, they certainly won't make enough money to survive. This parable in Matthew chapter 20 continues a theme about what Jesus is talking about from chapter 19. The, the, The theme here and in much of the Gospels is God's love for those who are the most vulnerable in our culture and in our society. This is one of our core values here at Prodigal Church, that God has a particular heart for the lowly, the poor, the suffering, the hurting, the disenfranchised in our world, and that so should we. When the landowner asks, why are you standing around here doing nothing? Because no one's hired us. Then he says, you also go work in my vineyard. Notice that he doesn't even promise to pay them anything. There is no agreement, no symphonio. He just invites them to work as well. Let's finish the parable. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them was also given a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The parable should be called the parable of the complaining workers or the parable of the surprising salaries. And the landowner, uh, he's a troublemaker. He's up to something here. You see, in the first century, it was customary to pay those who have been working the longest first. It's only fair, right? They've been there the most, pay them first. And if the vineyard owner had chosen to pay the 12 hour workers first and sent them on their way, then they may not have discovered what the other workers were paid. But for some reason, the owner wanted them to see. He was intentional about the last being first. He wanted them to see something, or perhaps he wanted them to see someone else, someone other than themselves. He's a troublemaker. It makes much more sense to us that for those who worked longer and harder deserve more and greater recognition. Just in life, right? Don't you think there should be some kind of merit system? Those who are involved in doing more religious, good activities are overall good people. They should get some kind of reward. Jesus is keenly aware of this basic urge for recognition, and that's why he told the story. God's system looks strange to us, for the system of the world we're used to is very different. This system of merit. In our lives here on earth, Everything is based on a system of merit. You get what you earn, you earn what you get, no more, hopefully no less. It's permeated all of society and it has even permeated the church. From the cradle on up, every one of us has to live within this system of merit. We're obsessed with fairness, but grace is received, not deserved. God's grace is about mercy, not fairness. What would have been fair in the parable would be to pay the later workers less than the daily wage or pay those who had worked all day more than the daily wage. That would be fair. And when we speak about grace, it is something different than fairness. In this parable, Jesus is calling into question the whole system of merit and instituting God's economy of grace. Jesus replaces our system of merit with God's economy of grace, of undeserved favor and love. Now, here's the haunting question for us. Who do you relate to in this parable? Why do we all relate to the laborers who have worked all day and not to the laborers who only showed up for an hour? Why do we identify with the workers who have been there all day, who didn't get their fair share, and not to the person who was given in abundance? It is because what it all boils down to is we all think we've been treated unfairly. I think I've been treated unfairly, and you think you've been treated unfairly. In our lives, God has missed some things that we haven't been recognized for. We all think we're missing or something or that we deserve something. And Jesus is aptly aware of this inside of all of us. Look at the end of the parable. Verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? They're asked a question, but they do not respond. The landowner says, or are you resentful because I'm generous? Uh... We're resentful because you're generous. That's how they would would and should respond. And that's how we would respond if we're honest. We're resentful because God's generous to people who don't deserve it at the expense of people who do deserve it. The question in this parable is not meant for the laborers to answer. It is meant for us to answer, for you and I to answer. What does it look like to live out the grace of God. Those people don't love God. It's not fair that they get blessed and I'm barely scraping by. It's not fair that that God let that person get the promotion and I deserved it. It's not fair that they don't discipline their kids or take them to church and they're thriving while I've been disciplining my kids this whole time and trying to get them to live like Jesus and they're acting out. They're not well behaved. You get an offender fender bender, come on Lord. I've got a, a Christian radio station sticker on the back of my car. That person has a bumper sticker that says, don't hate the player, hate the game. Something's wrong, right? This is because we are living and surrounded by and see the world in a system of merit and God calls us to the economy of grace. Grace isn't fair. It's something entirely different. God threw fairness out the door when Jesus was nailed to that cross 2,000 years ago. God said, instead of fairness, we're going to operate in mercy. Instead of fairness, we're going to operate in grace. And we as the people of God, we as followers of Jesus, we as the local church need to operate in mercy. We need to operate in grace. Grace. Grace is the last best word. Let's say you are at a party and a number of people are talking about how cool someone named Grace is. And then you find out that Grace is also at the party. And let's say that you've heard enough intriguing information that you decide that you wanna get to know her and all of a sudden, Grace walks into the room. Clearly, the best way to get to know Grace is to walk up and speak with her. Religion. Is like a person at the party talking about grace with everyone else except grace. Sure, all paths will get you that far. You can get to know a person, you know, by speaking with other people about them, but to really get to know someone, to really to get to not just know about them, but to get to know them, it has to be person to person. You see, if grace is just a message, a collection of facts, a definition, then you get to know that message through other people. Many paths lead to that knowledge, but if grace is a person, then the only way you can get to know grace is through grace. And so you're back at the party. There you are. You're trying to get up the courage to to stop talking with everyone except grace, about grace, and instead you wanna walk right up to grace and get to know her. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be beautiful if you were trying to muster up the courage to go across the room to speak with grace but Grace then took the initiative and came over to connect with you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Grace told you she'd been looking for you all night and looking forward to getting to know you all this time as well? This is the message of Jesus, that God is not against us, that God is for us, that Jesus took the initiative to give us abundant and everlasting life. And his grace really is amazing. God, we pray that we would live out the economy of grace. God, that this system of merit, this keeping score between us and them would fade and that we would live out compassion, mercy, and grace. We thank you, Jesus. That you are not fair, but that you are love, that you are grace. And that's better than being fair. So help us, God, to show that in our own lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen.